Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are indeed worthy and there is none like you. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to share not only with those small in number in this place, but with those that are gathered in this locality and even around the world. Not what we have to offer by voice or by electronic presence, but what you have to offer in that intimate place that only you can access because it is specially reserved for the creator and the creator alone. God, I just want to recognize that this morning and give you honor and praise and thank you for thinking so lovingly of us that you would come into that place that has been closed off, that is cold and dead and hard, and that you would spark it to life and that you'd indwell it by the very same power that you indwelled Jesus who leads us to you, Lord, that you would allow us to take part even in the small way of who you are until we get to see you face to face and that the invitation is indeed to come to you. And I ask that to a person that we would take that up and follow through on that and allow you to do what only you can do in these days and in the days to come and for all eternity. For it is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. In the late 80s, I uh, had everything in my life change. I had grown up in the Northwest and uh, in an area in North Oregon. And it was very temperate. We lived in the Willamette Valley. And so the winters were never terribly cold and the summers were never terribly hot. Uh, there wasn't a great amount of snow where we lived in the valley. There was a ton up on the mountain. And it was always easy to move from climate to climate. And uh, if it was too hot in the valley, you could go to the ocean and it would always be 10, 15, 20 degrees cooler, just depending on the time. If it was too cold and rainy, you just hopped over the mountain and you went to eastern Oregon where it would almost always be 10, 15 degrees warmer and normally sunny. And so it was a wonderful, incredible place to grow up. My parents uh, moved around a lot when I was very, very young, but settled in in, in, a, in a home that became my dad's uh, project for many decades to come. And, and it was a great place to live. Uh, we, we loved it. It wasn't in the best neighborhood in the city, but it was full of of action and and we were really my brothers my sister and I were really given a lot of freedom to really explore our little plot there in in downtown of where we lived and and it was a it was all in all a really really great place uh, to grow up and lots of fond memories lots of great stories but I I I'd completed my high school career and, and really wanted to go to college and it was a little bit of a different thing from my extended family unit, but it was something that my parents really encouraged. And so I hunted around and found a college, and they offered me a phenomenal scholarship, so I took them up on the money that they were willing to, to give to me. In fact, I had a very deep passion to graduate from college with no debt, and it was going to make it possible for me to do that. So went through all the application processes, got the scholarships, and um, moved down from Northern Oregon to Southern California. And I'll never forget the first week, you know, the freshman orientation week. It was the hottest week that they'd had 
in Southern California in recent memory. The low temperature overnight, the low temperature for the week was 91 degrees. It averaged between 112 and 119 degrees during the day. I thought that I moved from this idyllic place that was just so marvelous and wonderful in my memory straight to hell. And I, 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 I just, I, I remember laying on my dorm bed because we did not have uh, air conditioning in, in the dorm. That was, it was in a little bit older building in, the, in 119 degree weather. Even if we had air conditioning, it would have just been overwhelmed. The, the window was cracked open, which we were told not to do because it took what little air conditioning we had and sucked it out of the building. But I did not care because I was just on the bed after my second shower of the day. Um, and I didn't dry off because all you need to do is just walk from the shower back to the dorm, dorm room and you'd be dry because it was just that hot. Laying on, on my bed, um, just wanting not to move and wishing that I had a bigger fan. And I, I remember that not only was um, just the heat something completely outside of my realm of experience day after day after day, um, but also the, the pollution was almost indescribable. You know, I, I'd grown up drinking water that was at the time listed as the top 10 best municipal waters in the world. I don't know how they determined that, but it was, you know, they sampled stuff from France and all these different places. And what came out of our tap was listed. I mean, I, I remember just loving to drink water because it was just so, so good. Um, to you didn't drink what came out of the tap there. Um, in fact, I, I would I knew how to boil water because my mom taught me how to cook. And you'd boil water and there'd be things floating at the bottom, not at the top, at the bottom of the water that came out of the tap. And so I'm thinking, this is not good. And I did try it and got this subsequent uh, reminder that this was not good. And so this was different than what I had experienced before. And in Southern California, there's tons of palm trees. Well, during that, that time, I lived in, in Riverside, so it's called the Inland Empire, and it's a valley that backs up against the San Bernardino Mountains. All of the pollution had been kind of shoved from the Los Angeles area into the valley, and it had stacked. And so not only was it incredibly hot, but the air quality was incredibly low. And I remember looking out and barely being able to see the tops of the palm trees, that it was, it was that thick of pollution, not clouds, just pollution. And you didn't want to touch your face, you know, like wipe your sweat off with it because the taste of sulfuric acid would immediately um, be on your lips. And yes, I do know what sulfuric acid tastes like. I took chemistry in high school and I had to do that. So I knew what the taste of that was. And, and, and it, I, I just remember at the end of that week thinking, Everything has now changed. I'm 1,200 miles away from my home, where all my family's at, just a small family, but all my family at, where my church is at, and, and all the things that I knew before are now gone. I can't get a glass of water because you can't drink that stuff. It gives you upset stomach. You know, I can't go outside and take a run around because you can't even, the air is so thick you could cut it. It is hot, hot, hot all the time. Even at nighttime, it doesn't cool down. Everything was changed, but I knew it was my new reality. So I took a deep breath and focused in on the things I was looking forward to, the excitement of going to college classes and meeting new people and having a new rhythm of life and all the things that come with normal collegiate changes. I, I, I could have 
focused in on, you know, my, my mom is a great cook and she would always do really creative things. And at the time that I was going to that particular college, um, they had sourced out their, their cooking and the people that were doing the cooking is a big company and it was terrible food. And so, you know, it was just awful. Everything's changed. So I could have focused in on those negative things and made that a death knell for the experience and not been able to, to continue to complete or chose to look forward to the things that I knew that God was doing. And I, I saw some things happen almost immediately. Uh, this was back in the days before cell phones. And so we had one phone on every dorm level. It was a pay phone. It was sat in the middle. And uh, of course, I'm there freshman week and by myself because I, they put me on a dorm level with all upperclassmen, which was another story. Me and my roommate were the only freshmen on the entire floor, which we got harassed all my freshman year uh, for being the two freshmen on, on, on the floor. And uh, I remember the phone rang, and I'm like, the phone's ringing, and there's nobody here. Am I supposed to answer it? And, uh, and it just rang and rang and rang, and I'm not going to answer it. Well, then it started ringing again. Well, maybe it's important. So I went, into, hello, you know, answered the phone. And, and the person on the other side said, hey, Robert. I'm like looking around and, you know, for cameras and stuff. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was the wrong number. He was calling the floor two floors up for me and he got my floor's number. And he was calling his son named Robert. And I'm also named Robert. And he didn't recognize the voice, but he, you know, he knew his son, Robert, would be answering the phone two floors up, and I'm Robert, and I'm answering down. Anyway, long story short, uh, he invited me to come and to help to start a church in a local town about 20 or 25 minutes away, and I had nothing else better to do, so sure, it was a sign from God. He called me by name, literally called me, hey, Robert, you know, it's like, come, come start this church, and so I was just a college freshman, and you start at so I began to see that God was doing things, even in the midst of everything being changed in my life. The climate, the food, the water, the family relations, everything was changed. It was all different, but God was still working. And I wanted to share that story, not just to give you a little bit of insight of why I'm as warped as what I am, but also to really be an encouragement. That in these times of change, and I'm starting to read more and more stories of you know, things going to change, things going to change, things going to change. In this time of change, God is actively at work. And what our opportunity and challenges as Christians is to discover where he's at work, to join him where he's at work, and allow him to do things that only he could and will do in these times of incredible change. And so for the next several weeks, however long this sequesterment lasts, at least, perhaps longer than that, I'm going to be sharing with those that choose to, to listen, how we can access what God is doing now in the midst of all these changes and then changes that come, and that we as God's people would be able to really enjoy, even though everything is upside down or many things are upside down, the things that he is discovering for us to do because he's already designed them for us to do because he's not surprised by what we, in the past several weeks, and indeed the last couple of months, have been surprised by. So in thinking of you know, where to start with this kind of introduction, uh, I, I, 
I talked to the Lord and I said, God, where would be a good place to start? Because the things that we're experiencing now as far as changes, and we will experience, particularly as the church and changes over the next few weeks, months, and years, are not things that I've not considered before. In fact, I've been speaking to them for many, many years. And unfortunately, because things were solid, they were happening, they were comfortable and familiar, not many people have been interested, a few, but not many people have been interested. Well, now we're being forced into evaluating some of these things. And so I'm trying to make sure that as I talk about these things, that I'm not talking from a, I've been thinking about this for a couple of years. You ever had that experience to where you've thought about something and you think that other people thought that with you? And so you start talking about it and they're like, what are you talking about? It's like, well, you know, you know, I've been thinking about this for years. It's like, no, I'm not in your head. Thank God I'm not there. You know, and they're just lost. And so I'm going to try not to do that. I'm personality wise, I tend to do that. So I'm, I'm trying to be better myself, but really biblically and um, persistently to, to present these things for consideration in a way that, that my hope is that God's people can take it up and say, okay, yes, this is what he's doing. And I, I want to be abundantly clear. What we're going through now, the church has gone through many, 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 many times before. We, in this culture and at this time, have become very antithetical to history. We don't, if you even say the word history, in fact, I've said it twice now, and some of you immediately are sleeping. You're rather, you know, he said history. It's like this mesmerizing thing. And we, we see history as one of two things, incredibly boring or something that we have to deconstruct. So, even in, our, even in our own lives, we, we do not like heroes. And even people that we adopt as heroes for a little while, we love to deconstruct them and to tear them down so they're anti-heroes by the time that we're done. But that's topic for another message. We don't do history in our culture. But it's so important, particularly in this time, to understand that we're part of God's story, his story, and that he is not surprised or unprepared for the things that have happened and he's brought his people consistently literally from adam and eve to this very day through all sorts of radical societal changes radical climate changes radical viral changes radical changes of all sort i mean he's he's not inexperienced at doing this and he will do this again not for the sake of our comfort although he's very concerned about it, not for the sake of our shine, which he's not opposed to, but for the sake of his kingdom, which is going to go far beyond the time that we're going to live and the time that this creation is going to exist. And that's the framework that God works in. We work in this very small framework, less than 100 years for most of us, for a very, very few, a little bit more than 100 years, but that's just it. That's our time frame. God's dealing... Not with the entire of human history, the entire history of the universe, of the omniverse, and indeed outside of that in eternity. And so we've got to, as Christians, remember this is who we're dealing with. He's not overcome by this. And in doing so, he's left us clues along the way, left us guidelines along the way, left us directions along the way so that we can follow him through these particularly tough times. I want to remind you of what we see in the 23rd Psalm. 
you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because he's with me. And so people have been walking through the valley of the shadow of death, which, by the way, is getting to the other side, uh, without fear, not because they're somehow super courageous, but because of who's with them. And so we need to remember who is with us if we're followers of Jesus Christ. He is with us. And even if death is reigning all around us, we can walk through without fear, not because it's not a scary place, but because we trust in the one who has the ability and the authority to see us through. So these are things that are not new. It's my bottom line. These are not new, but for us, they may be novel just like the coronavirus or COVID-19 or whatever it's being called at the particular time. So I want to read to you just a few verses from the second letter to the Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's, it's an incredible chapter. It begins by talking about how we who are in Christ have this, this tension in our lives that we, in our spirit, want to be with the Lord. And we want to be freed from the brokenness of this body. We want to be freed from the difficulty of this life because, not because we want to be with him. Not because of the difficulty, and the, but because we want to be with him. And, and, so, and it builds on that because Paul is writing to people who live in the place at a time. And he's letting them know that, hey, God is working, and he's working through. And this is the construct, this is the context in which he's working. And so it is so applicable to today, and I, I really pray that you're deeply encouraged and that the Holy Spirit really spurs your imagination and your energy to start taking up that which God has prepared ahead of time that we should walk in it. Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter, the 16th verse says this. So we, Paul and others who belong to Jesus, have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And so, in this time, when things are changing, they're changing quite rapidly, in this time when we don't know where the changes are going to lead us, and what things are going to look like in two months, or five months, or six months, or two years, and that's fine, we can, un we can understand that there is some things that we can be very firm about and some actions that we can move toward to know that we are ready and working in, work in the space where God has already prepared and he's already working. So this begins really with taking up a new vision of ourselves and others. Paul says we stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. He means exactly that. 
we as human beings want to look at each other the way we have a, become accustomed to looking at each other. For some people, they look at the tone of somebody's skin. For other people, they look at how tall they are. For other people, they look at how strong they are. For other people, they look at how emotionally engaging they are. For other people, they look at how wealthy they are. We love to put all sorts of categories out there. Some of us have these very complex evaluation processes, and some people have very simple ones. But as human beings, we evaluate each other based on whatever little construct that we have. Like I said, some of those constructs are very simple, very straightforward, and some of them are incredibly complex, but we do this. Paul mentions that he even did that with Jesus, and so let's get a little bit into his head. You know, Paul was part of the educated elite. Paul was part of the religious elite. Paul was connected not only to his local governmental structure, but also at the time what they would be considered to be a worldwide governmental structure, the structure of the Roman Empire. And so he had lots of constructs to be able to evaluate Jesus. So he, when he thinks about Jesus, he thinks about a guy who grew up in the backwater, you know, the place where nobody really wanted to live that was anybody. In fact, anybody that was extraordinary that came from that place was really truly extraordinary because nobody of any account came from there. In fact, it was a common saying, can anything good come out of this place? It's just the backwater of the folks. He was not educated in the places where the educated people go. And so here's two knocks right off the, from Paul's standpoint for this Jesus guy that he uh, grew up in the backwater. He's not educated in the places where the educated people to go. Well, it got even worse than that. Jesus would consistently pick on the people who were in the elite class. So the ones that were elite as far as the ruling class were concerned, the ones that were elite as far as the religious class are concerned, Jesus points out with, um, can you say, uh, stunning clarity, the hypocrisy of these two classes. And uh, he calls them to the carpet and he uses terms that we would consider if we were in that culture in that time to be incredibly impolite, you know, like snakes and other things like that, uh, tombs. Uh, the, Jesus is known to do this. So here he's continuing to be knocked down. And Paul, who had priorly been in prior days, been named Saul, was so offended, not only by Jesus, but by the movement that his teaching fostered, so he thought, that he actively pursued those that were followers of this Jesus guy. He would jail them. He would cause them to lose their jobs. He would cause them to lose their homes. And he even superintended the death of some. So this is Paul's evaluation, formerly Saul. This is Saul's evaluation of this Jesus guy. But see, he had an encounter with Jesus, which flipped all of that evaluation upside down. Since I don't think of him this way. It doesn't matter to me that he was from the backwater. In fact, so much had Paul's entire construct been flipped upside down, everything that he valued, he says in his letter to the, to the Philippian church, everything that I valued, my heritage, my position, my education, my wealth, my authority, all of those things are trash, rubbish, garbage, compared to the incredible blessing of knowing Christ. And so this is what he's speaking to. He's saying, 
I don't think of Jesus this way anymore. It has all changed. And folks, I think that we have gone from the Paul understanding as the church back to the Saul understanding of the church. You know, Jesus lived a long time ago. He's really great for when we die to have something nice to say at the funeral. And hopefully that there is a heaven. We'll get to go to a better place than here, which is a pretty good place anyway. And, and we've actually devolved in our understanding of who Christ is. And so I really want to encourage the church to remember who it is that rescued us from the power and penalty of sin, to remember the one who has done these incredible miracles before he was even named and after and is doing them even now. He is the very strength that holds the omniverse together. And this is the one whose spirit indwells us and that we just be in incredible awe of Jesus. And that gives us the ability to not only have a different vision of the people that we see, but a different vision of ourselves. We have lots of these songs right now. They're very, very popular about who we are in Christ. And, you know, we're victors and we're doing all this stuff. But I think it's things that we sing to try to make ourselves feel better or to try to give us some sort of philosophy for doing great things. But it doesn't really change us. What we really need to understand is come down to the absolute foot of the cross and be amazed by the one who loved us so much that his life's blood is drained there and that we realize that the very same power that allowed him to take on the whole sin of the world, past, present, and future, and take it to the grave is the very same power that's in us. And that, so we can do things like look at other people and see them as people that God loves so much that he gave himself for them whether it be a neighbor or somebody that we don't normally like or not somebody that we don't normally inter integrate with or somebody that's outside of our experience, it does not matter because God knows who they are and he loved them so much. And that gives us a different view of them and it also gives us a different view of ourselves because we do the same thing. Some of us are very simple evaluators of, of ourselves and some of us are very complex look in the mirror and we start picking out things that we don't like or things that we'd like to be different or whatever but when we see in the mirror somebody that God not only loved enough to rescue not only loved enough to indwell but loves enough to put on mission as part of his grand work in this world now in the next few moments, and until he comes and gathers it all up and recreates it again, then that gives us a completely different concept of who we are. Again, as the church, what we've done is we've become very independent as far as our connection to the, to the church, but very congregationally driven. So we, we need somebody to tell us what to do to go out to love our neighbor. We need somebody to tell us what to do to take that next step in discovering the depths of who God is through the reading of his word. We need somebody else to tell us to do about everything. And if we don't like the way that we're told, then we separate from this congregation, we go to this other congregation, and we just keep on shopping around until we find something that we like. Then we hang out for a little while until we don't like it anymore, and then we just keep on switching, 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 switching. Again, God's designed us to be gifts to each other and to bring ourselves into a connection with each other, not as some sort of obligation, please entertain me, not as some sort of resource, please empty me out, 
but it's part of what God is doing. Peter writes about this, and he actually calls people who belong to Jesus living stones that God is placing exactly where he wants. And so we, we've got to have this idea that I'm not working independently of what God is doing, and I'm not working independently of what he's doing in other people, but I've got a place that I'm bringing and things that he's designed in me and he's designing in me to offer. And this is how Saul turned into Paul is trying to explain to the church, hey, this is how we're connected and how we're supposed to work. And this is equally applicable, maybe even more so in this day than it was in the days that he wrote to the church at Corinth. You might say, well, you have no, you have no idea about where I've been and the things I've done and how complex my particular evaluation process is. Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, specifically addresses that in verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. We have this new freedom from our past. And for me, personally, this is, this is incredibly good news. I have this stupid good memory about things. It's getting less and less good the older I get, so which is kind of a bummer on the one hand and a grace on the other hand. But I remember things from when I was four and five years old. I remember graphically things that happened in the first grade, in the second grade, in the third grade, in the fourth grade, and things I said and places that I went. And, you know, it, it is not some distant fog. It is like it happened yesterday. And so as somebody who didn't always do what he's supposed to do, I'll just put it that way, there's a lot of room to carry around a lot of guilt from the past. And even though I wasn't as bad as I could have been, because I wouldn't have been alive, my parents would have killed me. It's back in the day when they could have done that and got away with it. I was significantly bad enough that even talking about it now kind of brings a little color to my cheeks. Because I remember these things. God knows them all. And all of those things he rescued me from in Jesus Christ. And so when I came to that place of realizing that gift of God, that grace that comes through Jesus Christ, he freed me from that. Those things no longer have hold on me. Now they still happened. And there's consequences because of that. There's relationships that are broken because of things that I did. And it doesn't undo those things necessarily. It can, but it doesn't undo those things necessarily. But it does free me from those things. And it puts me into a completely different category. And it's the category of being part of what God is doing. The translators of the New Living Translator, Translation try to make this passage that's kind of very difficult and, and to translate from Greek into English very clear. Uh, they say the old life is gone, a new life has begun. But what they're not able to really convey is it isn't just my individual life, which is true, but it is literally a life that is being grafted into what Christ is doing. Um, Michelle and I have a piece of land that we're trying to convert into a farm, and one of the things that's on our farm is orchard trees. And one of the things that's very common for orchard trees is that you use a stock of roots that are very hardy for the area. 
Because the idea is, is if you take the, the natural tree, whether it be an apple or a plum or a pear, we've got all of them, and you put that rootstock into the ground, if that ground isn't exactly what that rootstock needs, that tree will not flourish. And so what it does is die more often than it survives. But by taking a rootstock that loves the ground in this area and grafting into that solid rootstock, something that may not work so well in this particular area with this particular soil, the life that's coming from that root allows what's above to grow and to thrive. And this is the image that Paul's using here. He's saying that where you were at was dead. It wasn't going to survive. It's not going to make it. It's under the penalty of sin, which is going to make death. But even in the environment in which it's going, it's not going to move. But what God does is he takes us and he grafts, uh, takes off that which he's created and puts us in to that rootstock, which is Christ. And so we have the power and the authority and the ability to do what he's designed us to do. And so even though this rootstock might be something that we may even consider to be a weed because it, it is hardy and grow, then there, whatever's planted into it grows. So that like a pear tree or a plum tree or an apple tree, it comes up and, and you gotta, you got to work on it and, and, and keep it. You know, yeah, but the life is coming from the roots. Well, in Christ, we've been grafted into that. And so the source of our life comes from him and not from whatever it is that we had before. And I think that many Christians have lost that, again, this concept that has been passed down from generation to generation. And in generations past, it was very clearly understood. We've become foggy about it. You know, that somehow God has just kind of transitioned us over as the same people into being religious people. Or God's transitioned us over to be freed from a couple of other things that were not so good and and so those things are gone, and now we are just kind of doing our thing moving forward. No, he's taken us from everything that provided what we knew as life before, which was actually just death, and put us into Christ. And that's freeing, because I know that if I'm, if I'm drawing from the roots that I had before, that that would be just poison. I was so afraid of not being loved, I could not speak. I was so dependent upon what other people thought of me. I would do whatever they suggested. You know, that I could go on and on and on talking about the death of the root system that I had before. But now that's been cut off. I'm no longer connected to that root system. Now I remember it because I'm still me. But I'm put into a completely different root system. That is the root system of Christ. Jesus even uses this very same kind of analogy in John. And he says in the 15th chapter of John, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And if you're connected into me, you have life. And if you're not, you have no life. And so we are, need to see ourselves in this light. And because of this, we have to take up two incredibly important activities of life, uh, philosophies of life, constructs of life all the above and it's one that are very very limited in the modern church world and that is the mission of reconciliation and the vocation of diplomacy
Look back to the passage that we're at. And all this is a gift from God, verse 18, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Paul is very clear. In our normal, natural state, we are separated from God. Period. We, we do not have this connection. I've been told by people from West Coast to East Coast, me and God are just like this. And that's always an awkward conversation because the truth is that you and God are like this. In fact, you can probably stretch it way further out than that. You're not like this. I've literally had people say, yeah, me and God are just like this. It's like, no, you're not. Why? Because you're not in Christ. The only way that us and God can be even close to being like this is because of Jesus. And Jesus actually makes us closer than this. We're indwelled by Christ at that point. So the intimacy is not just crossed fingers. The intimacy is we can't be separated anymore. And Paul writes about that in Romans 8. Again, another message altogether. So we now have been given this mission to, to lovingly and consistently and gently and graciously be part of God taking people that are far from him and directing them back to him. And being part of that ministry of reconciliation, taking that which is broken and restoring it. Not that we can do that, only the Holy Spirit can do it, but we can be used by the Holy Spirit to be part of that. And so when we begin to evaluate people based on how far from God are they currently and how can I help them to be reconciled back to him, then that becomes a constant job. And I love that God has moved me out of uh, what would be considered full-time ministry, again, another subject for another time, and into the workforce. Because now I have this opportunity consistently to do things and to be thinking constantly, how can I take the people that I interact with that are my clients, how can I take the people that I interact with that I'll never meet but one time, how can I take the people that I work with and I'm in daily conversation with and bring them closer to knowing the incredible power of Jesus Christ in their lives. And that's a full-time job. That's an opportunity I have every hour, every day. Sometimes I do great. Sometimes I really stink at it. But that is my job. My job isn't to do the things that I do, which I do, and I work very, very hard at it. My job, my mission, is to bring people that I interact with into reconciliation with Christ. And that is the job of every Christian. And we've lost it. We think it's the job of the preachers. We think it's the job of the teachers. We think it's the job of the church leaders. We think it's anybody else's job in Jesus other than mine. There are no exceptions. It is every single Christian's mission to be an agent of reconciliation. Not only that, but to occupy a vocation of ambassador. Verse 20, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be offering for our sins so that we can be made right with God through Christ. And so now we are diplomats when we go out. And I'll tell you, um, the reconciliation part for me is a little bit easier than this whole diplomatic thing. I, I considered as a young man going into the diplomatic corps. I was fascinated with politics, with international relations, and, and that really, really, really just was something that was very desirous. And then I started learning more of what it 
meant to being a diplomat and how you had to keep your mouth shut about things that you had opinions about. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like very much fun because especially in my younger years, if I had an opinion, it was coming out. I lost a lot of friends over that because sometimes even if I was right, my opinion needed to just stick in my head and not be shared with the world. And so I do that. So the whole diplomacy thing went out the window. Um, But I'm still Jesus's ambassador. And I could share story after story after story of epic fails at that. And, you know, and the reason why I can share all those stories is because the Holy Spirit was there. It's like, dude, you're my ambassador. And you just won war, not peace. You know, you just exuded anything opposite or everything opposite of being a diplomat, an ambassador, and you gave them some way to hate me, to despise me, to think less of me. I'm like, oh, I did it again. I'm sorry, Lord. And oftentimes I have to go back and try to make things right. And oh, it's a terrible, terrible responsibility. But it is one that God in his grace has given to us. And whenever I epically fail, and I do it a lot, even to this day, and I've been practicing for a long time, I remember that he specifically chose 12 guys, all of whom were not diplomats, one of whom betrayed him to his death, and he did it on purpose. He didn't want my accident. He didn't come with the list. And like, God, really? This guy? No, he called them, come follow me, come follow me, come follow me, come follow me. So I'm just part of that. Come follow me. And there's so much grace in that. Because I know that although I might not be the best diplomat, I might not be the most valued ambassador, that God chooses to use even people like me toward that end. And so if he can use people like me, he can use people like you. So you, you might not be the sweetest personality. That's what I have Michelle for. So it's my sweetest personality. So somebody to kind of take the edge off of me, which she has over these past three decades quite well and still working on me. And it's okay that God made you the way you are. You need to learn how to submit that to the fullness of his authority in your life. Because there's times... To where God needs people like me to be part of what he does because we'll stand up and say something when nobody else will and sometimes an ambassador has to be the one to deliver the bad news and to say listen this is this is the situation and I've been in that situation many many times and to be able because of the way that God created me to stand up and to say hey this is causing death this is causing destruction You need to be reconciled to God. And I can do that because of me. The people that are more sweeter and and less abrasive and aggressive, they would never make it in those kinds. So God can use even me, and he will use you. You can't say, well, if I were only different, then. God created you the way he created you. And he put you in circumstances that will allow who you are in Christ to shine, to be that agent of reconciliation, to be his ambassador in that moment. We need to, as a church, recapture that. And this is the challenge. This is a challenge for us. In this environment, 
where the reality of everything changed. I was reading an article that said we might have to wear face masks until 2022. Whatever, okay, you know, um, I kind of like people's faces. I love to read their eyes and to see their expressions and everybody's covered up to here and then you're, you know, they could be not snarling at you and if it's not in their eyes, you have no idea. It's just like, that does not excite me at all. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know it doesn't matter what happens. In every day, I'm Christ's ambassador. In every day, I'm an agent of his reconciliation to this world who is apart from him. Every day, I'm freed from my past. And I'm created anew in Christ Jesus, washed over with mercies that start that very moment. Every day, I have the opportunity and the obligation to no longer evaluate people by my own particular construct, but to see them the way that God sees them every day. And if we as the church are going to be who God has designed us to be as we move through this time where things are changing, these are things that we have to remember day by day. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is my challenge to you. And if you've yet to choose to surrender to Jesus as the sole authority of your life, as the one who will forgive you of the sin that you have committed, which you have, by choosing to do what you want to do as opposed to being obedient to what he's designed you to do, I want to give you opportunity right now, wherever you're at, to make that exchange right now. To give your life for the life that comes from him, to take that root that you have been planted in since you were born, and to be cut off from that and to be planted anew in Christ so that you might be able to receive all the things that I've spoken about this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll have a time that you can respond to God's leadership. Father, I thank you so much for these truths that I've been able to share. Thank you that they are not new truths, and that these very same things have kept your people through many, many changes of the past, some far more dramatic than anything that we'll experience in this day. Lord, they've allowed your shine to become greater. They've allowed your family to become bigger. And Father, I pray that both of those things would be true in the hours and the days and the weeks to come for the sake of making the sacrifice that you gave in Jesus Christ all the more valuable. I ask in his name. Amen. Mm -hmm.